This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And this week, we're taking a look back at 2022 from a climate perspective. Vladimir Putin is counting on the fact that people will refuse to get out of their cars and people will refuse to put their thermostat down one degree. And if we can't take that on board, then he's going to be right. And that's going to be a tragedy. And it's a tragedy for the climate. From Russia's invasion of Ukraine to threats closer to home. We have to save the democracy in order to save the climate and save our species. And we're looking ahead at what the past year can tell us about the future. I think that some of the worst case scenarios now seem, if not impossible, then considerably less likely than they did. This year in climate, up next on Climate One. As 2022 comes to a close, producer Ariana Brocious and I are taking a look back at the past year, the highs and the lows. And what a year it's been. This year's Atlantic hurricane season was one of the costliest on record. Hurricane Ian alone caused an estimated $67 billion in damages and killed around 150 people. According to the New York Times, the total cost of hurricanes has gone up 11-fold since the 1980s, and that's adjusted for inflation. Yeah, and those are costs that affect all of us, even when it's not our own home that's destroyed. There also was good climate news this year. The Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest investment in clean energy this country has ever made. It offers carrots to companies and individuals to electrify everything and signals a big shift from passing climate policy to implementing it. Yeah, we're going to be seeing the ripple effects of the IRA for many years to come. It's really exciting. But the biggest international energy story of the year was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has weaponized methane gas supplies, disrupted global energy markets, and threatened a nuclear disaster. This summer, you spoke with Roman Zinchenko. He's co-founder of Greencubator, an organization focused on building a green economy in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. He spoke to you from Kyiv about his daily life and what it feels like to be working in the middle of an ongoing war. I'm lucky that... All the lives in our family, uh, everybody's fine. We have no mm. properties destroyed. Uh, we do have the friends serving in the army now. We do have the friends and partners who were uh, who were either wounded or killed during uh, during the fights, and uh, we are getting the information firsthand. And that's um, eye-opening. For, so mm. first, it's shocking. Then, like from my perspective, from my experience, it's a kind of uh, tremor and maybe panic. And then you're starting to act. Because in my case, the practical action is something you you can use to calm the fear, to calm the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So we saw millions of people uh, leaving the country. We helped many of them. Well, one of one of our projects was building a shelter for the mothers with kids in Lviv that were going overseas. Uh, and uh, also, we have a different front, which is the front of economy, the front of business, the front of education, where we are serving. We lost a lot of brilliant people. We uh, lost a lot of our heritage, we lost a lot of our economy. Uh, on the other hand, it shows how adaptable we are and how we are able to uh, reinvent the way of living 
on the tough situation. How do you compare adapting to war to adapting to climate change, those things that operate on different timescales and have a different human face? Uh, I think there is a real danger in terms of climate change that it's not so visible. You can't hear in the morning that the rockets are hitting your city. Yeah, so with the climate change, sure, there are some uh, some wildfires in the forests, but the danger of the climate change, it comes slowly and it creeps in until someday you just see that your land is no longer fertile without irrigation and you just cannot ensure irrigation on this land because the water levels in the rivers were lost. So the war is loud. The climate change, not always. How is the war connected with climate and how does Russia view renewable energy? Well, there is a very interesting document of the Russian national uh, Russian national security uh, strategy, which directly quotes the proliferation of renewable energy, new energy sources, and energy efficiency as a direct threat to the Russian national security. Um, the current invasion is fossil funded, and it's funded uh, through building the uh, energy dictatorship. We are paying the big price, the tragic price for the world to see that, to witness that, to understand that. We are paying the price of the thousands and thousands of lives lost and uh, cities and villages raised from the uh, from the earth. But still, we, we are holding we're a resilient country, we have resilient communities, and I think that this uh, th- this period would be also a huge push towards the new opportunities for, for Ukraine as the player in the energy field, as the player in sustainability field, and as a player also in the business field. That's really amazing to hear his hope and optimism, especially in the face of what they have been going through this year. That's so powerful to hear him talk about war is loud and climate is this stealth threat that sneaks in and creeps in until one day it explodes. Uh, That's really powerful. And then to hear him say that and then his optimism and resilience and dedication to changing the energy equation in Ukraine and beyond. Yeah, it's great to hear these kinds of voices. It does give you hope, right? (laughs) Boy, if they can confront those sorts of things, we can certainly do it here. You also spoke with Amy Myers Jaffe, director of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab, about the global implications of Russia's invasion. Many of us understood the climate emergency, but for those who were not on board with the speed and pace of change we needed from the climate emergency, many of those citizens are now understanding that this high dependence on Russian oil or oil from other countries that Uh, might be inimical to Western democracy, that this is a problem. And of course, the big solution to that problem is to move off of fossil fuels and to other sources of energy that are domestically produced, like solar and wind. So we know where we want to go. It's just a question of the speed at which we can do it. We're in a war. We can feel like that war is far away and doesn't involve us. But because we're participating through financial sanctions in supporting our allies in Europe, 
That means that we are involved in the transaction of trying to stop the further military activities of Russia. And that involvement means we need to reduce how much oil is used in the world. And we need to come up with replacement supplies for the oil we cannot reduce in the short term. And certainly during World War II, people rallied around the rationing of gas. People bonded, felt patriotic, that common sense of purpose. And I think that you're right, our, we're, we're horrified by what we're seeing, these bombings in Ukraine. Not sure it's, it's felt come it's, yet to that, yeah, that it, level. It of, hasn't sunk into people that you can make a donation to the Red Cross, but you could also get out of your car. And that would also contribute to helping Ukrainians and the whole process. I mean, when you think about the climate emergency and you think about wanting to support democracy in Europe, the action is the same. You need to use less fuel. You need to not use oil when you can. You need to think about ways to reduce your carbon footprint, which are also ways that are going to reduce the amount of money going to Russia. All of those things are the same. And we're not, we're waiting for someone to do it outside. We can do it ourselves. Listen, Vladimir Putin is counting on the fact that people will refuse to get out of their cars and people will refuse to put their thermostat down one degree. He is counting on that for the money to fund his war machine. And if we can't take that on board, then he's going to be right. And that's going to be a tragedy. And it's a tragedy for the climate. And it's still an open question whether the war in Ukraine will ultimately accelerate Europe's transition to renewable energy or lock in dependence on fossil fuels for even longer. But according to a recent report from the International Energy Agency, renewables are poised to overtake coal as the largest source of electricity generation globally by early 2025. And that's driven in large part by this war and the global energy crisis. And there's more good news. California finalized laws requiring that starting in 2035, only zero emission cars can be sold in the state. Washington and New York quickly followed suit. And one more piece of good news. The U.S. Senate ratified the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. And I got some strong feelings about this one. Maybe it's because I'm a climate nerd. This got surprisingly little press coverage, but it has huge implications for the climate. And it's notable that Republicans and industry were on board for ratifying Kigali, which is rare alignment these days. It doesn't get much media coverage, but this could reduce global warming temperatures by half a degree centigrade. Right. So just to explain, back in the 1980s, nations of the world agreed to the Montreal Protocol. This was a big international treaty that banned the production and sale of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were destroying the Earth's protective ozone layer. The problem was that those CFCs were then replaced by another class of refrigerants called HFCs. They don't have the same effect on the ozone layer, but they are absolutely devastating greenhouse gases. The Kigali Amendment bans HFCs as well. This is a big international win. And as you mentioned earlier, the other huge legislative victory for climate this year was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA allocates around $370 billion to invest in renewable energy, make EVs more affordable, address climate inequities, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. This is by far the biggest piece of climate legislation the U.S. has ever enacted. You recently spoke with former White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy about the significance of this law. 
which some environmentalists have criticized for including provisions that would also benefit the fossil fuel industry. You asked her if she thought there were too many handouts for dirty energy in the law. No, uh, actually, I thought it was it was really well done. It was nowhere near balanced, Greg. I mean, that whole that whole bill is, by estimation, going to reduce a gigaton of greenhouse gases and get us on its own to 41 to 42 percent. And if you combine that with regulations that EPA has already announced and is going to move forward with, you know, it, it'll it'll allow us to achieve a 50 percent reduction you know, by 2030. Yeah. And so, no, there are very few fossil incentives directly in the bill. Now, I understand that there are folks that are really concerned about uh, some of the oil and gas drilling that is in this, this second um, uh, part of the discussion uh, and commitment um, but really, I think we have to recognize a couple of things, that this is the most historic step forward by far, three to four times the level of anything we've ever accomplished before. And we know that fossil fuels have to be shifted over and clean energy has to be the future for us. But we also know that that's not going to be tomorrow. I mean, look at what's happening in Ukraine. Look at the impact that that has had in, in our country in terms of the cost of fuels and what it's doing in the EU and other places. I mean, it is uh, it tells you or ought to tell us, you know, two things that we have to be smart about energy security in terms of how we wean away from fossil fuels. It is not a spigot that we can turn off. If you think you want to help environmental justice communities, which the Inflation Reduction Act provides $60 billion of investments there in environmental justice communities and $60 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure law, if you want to join with me and others who care dearly about environmental justice, then think about how we can get there in a way that does save families money in a way that does allow us to invest in our future and be more energy secure. These small issues are, I get it, they're, they're symbolic, but many of them we have to just put into a larger context and framing that we are shooting for really a 2050 net zero. I would rather get there in 2035 <laughs> But I will understand that I can't get there by 2030. It's just the way it is. Coming up, how do we bridge political and ideological divides? You don't show up, especially on someone's doorstep, on their porch, in their kitchen and say, hey, you want to argue about abortion with me? You show up and you say, hey, I'd love to get to know you, find out where our common ground is, and let's see if we can build a relationship from there. That's up next. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. 
Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this. I'm Greg Dalton, joined by Ariana Brocious as we look back at this year in climate. We had many deep conversations this year about the state of our democracy. We have to save the democracy in order to save the climate and save our species. That's Congressman Jamie Raskin. As a former constitutional law professor, he's thought a lot about the connections between an informed citizenry and a robust democracy. As Russia's war against Ukraine grinds on, funded by its fossil fuel exports, Raskin says democratic governments around the world need to unite. All of the autocrats and dictators and kleptocrats of the world have found each other uh, grouped around uh, the, the petrostates and the exploitation of uh, the earth and the destruction of our ecosystem by sticking to the old carbon model that's choking off the planet. And so the democratic movements and peoples and governments of the world have got to get together to defend democratic institutions and democratic processes. So the, the vast majority interest of the people on earth can be vindicated in making the break from the carbon kings and the carbon dictators. The struggle for democracy is the struggle for the truth and for science and to save us from climate disaster. Jamie Raskin's son, Tommy, died by suicide in late 2020. Congressman Raskin has written about how that personal pain, combined with a January 6th violent attempt to overturn the presidential election, galvanized him to defend truth and democracy. I asked him how that has also affected his thinking about the climate emergency. I mean, the the young people are pretty panic-stricken about climate change and what's taking place. And uh, I know that from my own kids and their friends, and I know it from the young people that I meet every day. Um, and um, my son Tommy uh, wanted a lot more from democracy and not a lot less from it, um, and had high hopes and expectations for what could be done. Uh, and he, of course, lost his life to depression. Um, but um, I think that uh, for me, the struggle to defend uh, the truth uh, is a precondition for defending our democracy. And the struggle to defend our democracy is a precondition for taking the effective action that needs to be taken in order to meet the climate crisis in a serious way um, and turn it around. And you know, this should be a moment where um, democracy is secured and released and emancipated in every country on earth and the democratic peoples of the world get together to confront climate change. Some people don't talk about climate change because they think it is depressing. How do you navigate that to you, in your own life, talking about it? Because it, it's seen as a downer sometimes or scary. People don't know what to do about it. You know, and, and I think that that's been true of all of our great challenges. I mean, the, I mean, there was literally a rule in Congress that you couldn't mention the word slavery for decades. I mean, you could be thrown off of the floor for uh, introducing a bill about slavery or mentioning it in debate. And 
There are people who don't like to talk about wars. Uh, there are people today, I've got colleagues who are lying about Vladimir Putin and his filthy, bloody war of atrocities against the Ukrainian people. So there's a lot of lying going on out there. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of disinformation. Um, that too turns people off. Um, and, um, you know, I just tell people two things when they say that they're, they're burning out or it's too overwhelming. Um, and I say, one, that you're not on a solo journey here. We're all in this together. And so if you're feeling burned out and you need to take the weekend off, then take the weekend off and other people will stand in your place in the climate movement, in the movement to defend democracy. And then uh, when somebody else gets tired for the weekend, you'll be there for them. So it's a collective enterprise we're in. But the other thing is never forget that uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Cambridge Analytica set out in the 2016 election to depress the hell out of everybody and to demoralize everyone because at the same time that they were trying to depress and demoralize young people, they were out looking for people who fit what they called the devil's triad of psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. In case that psychological profile sounds familiar to you, uh, that basically was the sector of society that was empowered and uplifted during the Trump administration. Yeah, they've weaponized the behavioral science with those technological tools. So my last question for you, Congressman, is with a burning democracy and a burning climate, how do you as a person and we as a country hold and confront both emergencies in an integrated way? Well, with a, a burning passion to defend our country and uh, to defend the survival of our species. And, and I don't think that's hyperbole. I mean, if we had bigger brains, if we were smarter um, as an animal, humans would be working on nothing other than climate change at this point. But because of the, the Trumpist movement and uh, the authoritarian thug Vladimir Putin and uh, all of their allies around the world were dragged back into a basic struggle between constitutional democracy and human rights versus authoritarianism. And so the democratic governments and movements have got to win that struggle and move on to make the profound policy changes we need in order to defeat climate change next. And really, I think we should be asking, how do we save our democracy? While the November elections did go relatively smoothly, the country seems more divided than ever. We certainly are. In fact, new polling from the Pew Research Center shows how the United States is more polarized than other industrialized democracies. Confronting the climate crisis requires long-term commitment, and in the political realm, that means support from both parties. Anangira Daradas is a journalist, political analyst, and author. His latest book, The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy explores how the tactics of persuasion can help strengthen democracy and foster positive societal change. I talked to him about the rare people who can simultaneously stand for something and not put other people off. This is not a book about how can we all get along better, how can we heal. It is a book about how do we save the country from very real threats, whether it's climate internal fracturing, democratic decay, um, disgusting wealth inequality that has you know, made the American dream something that only exists outside of the United States, uh, and so forth. But what I'm interested in is how do we grow the support for those ideas uh, and not 
write people off preemptively as being unaddressable, uninterested, stuck in their ways, never going to come around. How do we actually champion ideas like universal health care or ideas like everyone voting and, and, and having those votes protected or ideas uh, close to your heart around how do we defend the planet from the threat of it being uninhabitable? How do we do those things in a way that is through joyful, magnanimous, fiery movements, movements that don't just feel dour, right? And we should talk in, in climate in particular. I think there's been this problem of movements that are better at being right than they are at being sticky. The biggest problem with regard to climate on this topic of persuasion is the movement has been right on the facts, right on the warnings, right on the what needs to be done, right on the urgency, right on the shaming of politicians, right, 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 right. I think somewhere down the line, no one got the memo to make sure that we are building a movement that is more fun, more life-giving, more purpose-giving, more educative, more welcoming to be part of. And what I want is for more of the righteous causes in this country and around the world to think about, are we reaching people? Are we connecting to people emotionally and psychologically? Are we building that bigger we? Or are we just simply too complacent in the fact that our facts and our policies are correct? I think that happens in, in climate a lot, where if you're not vegan and solar, uh, you're kind of you're kind of looked down upon. There's this sort of, you know, purity test in climate world, like, uh, that sort of judges people about their greenness. And that can, people can sense that and it totally. can be off-putting. It's, yeah. it's such a good example because it gets to this confusion that I think a lot of the persuaders that I write about in the book were so smart about. Alicia Garza, one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, talks about this. She says, you know, I think, I'm paraphrasing here, but she, she, she told me, I, I think sometimes in our movements, we feel like if there's a lot of non-radical people in our radical spaces, there's something wrong with our radical spaces. It, our radical spaces is failing. And she was kind of like, what I'm here to say is, if there's non-radical people in your radical space, that's when your movement is succeeding, right? It, like, uh, and so you're, I growing was, and you're growing and recruiting. Correct. And you're, and you're now reaching people who don't share all the ideals, but they still want to be in there anyway. So if you got meat eaters in your climate movement, that means your movement is now reaching people who don't share all your convictions, who don't share everything, but that what they're there for, they still like something about what you're saying. You probably even alienated them sometimes with some of your vegan stuff, but they're still there. Why are they there? That's interesting. Why are they showing up? You have, you're, you've created something in them that they still want to be there in spite of the barrier. Hallelujah. Congratulations. Now you got a welcome. movement. Welcome, 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 yeah, welcome. She she also says Alicia Garza also says that you quote her as saying the right deeply understands people. The left gets up hung up on facts and figures and trying to change people's minds. So I was curious about there about how you can welcome someone while also still being a persuader. 
I think there's broadly two approaches in politics you see right now along the lines of what she's describing. What I think predominates on the left is you start with the wares that you're trying to sell. I'm trying to sell you climate legislation. I'm trying to sell you democracy legislation. I'm trying to sell you advanced manufacturing legislation. I'm trying to sell you infrastructure legislation. And you, the voter, may be standing over there being like, I'm really concerned about rising prices. I feel my neighborhood is unsafe. And I feel like the broad approach of the left is like, no, 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 no. You're overblowing this inflation. This is fine. It's just the war in Ukraine. Like you're overblowing the inflation. This crime thing is not real. The stats, if you actually run the regression another way, it's not actually more unsafe. What you're feeling is not real, <laughs> right? <laughs> and people are like, I don't know. I just, I, I saw two people got shot outside my street. I kind of don't like that. It's like, no, 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 no. If you actually compare it year on year, adjusted for population growth, it's, you're, you're totally safe. We've got white papers that say that. So many white papers. <laughs> and like, you know, inflation, like my family can't afford anything anymore. Yeah, but like it's Putin. It's like Putin did that, you know, <laughs> you know. And then, by the way, uh, we got these trucks delivering some wares. Would you like to reorganize the entire economy to fight climate change? Like, I'm really concerned about like inflation and crime. Like climate is so important. Like that's the, actually the issue that matters right now. And you know, uh, what about, uh, what about, uh, infrastructure? I'd love to build some infrastructure. Like, yeah, I'm just, I'm like, I can't afford my house. Like, yeah, but we need infrastructure, you know? And, and, and it's not that these policies are not the right policies. Cause as you know, they actually do address a lot of these issues and they do save you money in different ways. And they do create jobs that will help you afford your house. Right. But our, I just feel like very broadly speaking, the posture of the left is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you feel that stuff's important. But let me explain to you why, in fact, this other stuff is more important or is like is like primary. Like if you don't care about stuff we care about, then the stuff you're worried about like won't happen. That's often the argument. Okay, now pivot to the right. The right starts with what's going on with you? What's happening with you, Greg? What are you anxious about? What are you afraid about? What have you noticed in your town recently that made you go, huh? That's new. What did your kids come home and say to you about what they learned in school that made you feel a little bit destabilized because you didn't learn that thing in school? And that seems maybe a little weird what they learned or off-putting. What, what trainings have you been going to at work, Greg, that made you feel like, oh, I don't know, I feel kind of awkward in those trainings or I feel attacked in those trainings? The right is starting with you. Anand's framing is really fascinating, but I have to say his characterization of the difference between left and right seems just a little too simple. True. I've talked to many on the right who are all about pushing their policies and many on the left who do start with relationship building. Still, his framework really resonates with me and a lot of people I've talked to. One Democrat who embodies the personal approach is Chloe Maxman. She's the youngest woman ever to serve in the Maine State Senate, a seat she won in 2020 after unseating a two-term Republican incumbent. She and her campaign manager co-wrote Dirt Road Revival, a book detailing their approach to a strategy called deep canvassing. Let's listen back to a little of that interview. In your book, Dirt Road Revival, you write, quote, things move at the speed of relationships in rural America. You don't jump straight into business and take care of things as quickly as possible, end quote. How were you able to use that idea in your campaigning? To us, it really felt 
quite simple. You know, when we were having these conversations with folks, many of whom had never been contacted by a Democratic campaign or canvasser in their entire voting history, we didn't show up and say, hey, this is Chloe. This is who she is. Are you going to vote for her? Yes or no. Do you know where your polling place is? Yes or no. We didn't bring a traditional campaign script into the situation. What we did was we showed up and we said, hey, you know, we're from Chloe's campaign or, you know, I'm Chloe, just stopping by to see what's on your mind and how we can best represent what's going on in your life. So it was it was really about building relationships with folks. You know, I I always think of it as just like making a friend 101. You don't show up, especially on someone's doorstep, on their porch, in their kitchen and say, hey, you want to argue about abortion with me? You show up and you say, hey, I'd love to get to know you, find out where our common ground is, and let's see if we can build a relationship from there. How do you handle conversations with conservatives when they express opinions that are antithetical to your own beliefs or even offensive? I think I found a lot of space in myself to have conversations with people where we can agree to disagree and we can have very civil, kind, insightful conversations, even if we're coming out on opposite sides. And I think that's a really lost art that's so important for maintaining some sense of empathy in our political environment when that's becoming very, very difficult. And of of course, sometimes people say things that that I don't agree with or that I find offensive, Um, you know, and I I found my own way to kind of talk back to that, ask questions about it, understand where it's coming from. So it's not something that completely ends a conversation. Um, I, you know, I've just, I've heard so many people say that they just kind of expect liberals and Democrats to yell at them and to school them on what's right and wrong when it comes to, to certain issues. Um, My approach is not to Uh, argue with anyone, not to try to persuade anyone, but just trying to listen and understand what, what I'm hearing. And people use different language. I'm curious how you chose your words and if you used words to reflect back to people that I'm using your word, or at least which shows kind of, I understand you, or I'm not using that other word that those other people use. I mean, one of the biggest epiphanies that I had while doing this work is that so much of the time we completely align on values, but there are buzzwords or policies or just other things that are really divisive and prevent the conversation from happening. So really being able to, to focus on that deeper level of values was, you know, almost always there was space for a conversation there, even if there wasn't agreement. Um, and I think that was, that was so important, important, you know, it's about translating, um, this work into a rural conservative context. And I mean, it makes sense. We don't use the same language wherever we go. People don't communicate the same way in every state or in every community. And so it also doesn't make sense that we would have like a one size fits all approach to campaigning or talking about the Green New Deal or Medicare for all, or, you know, um, lowering student debt. Those conversations require a different dialect in, in rural communities like mine. Coming up, how should industrialized nations compensate developing countries that are suffering most from the climate disruption rich countries caused by burning fossil fuels? If I killed your dog and decided to pay you without saying I'm sorry, or I contributed to the death of your dog and I didn't say I'm sorry, but I paid you, how would that feel to you? That's up next.
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and today I'm joined by our producer, Ariana Brocious, as we review the top climate stories of 2022. It's pretty hard to capture everything we've talked about over the course of the year. We've explored politics, science, coping with climate anxiety through music, and we talked a lot about solutions how we can decarbonize cement, steel, and aviation, and how to start removing CO2 from the atmosphere. If you want to find those episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast or look back through our past episodes on climateone.org. But at the heart of everything we talk about on this show is people. Yeah, we talked with a lot of amazing people this year, and that was never more apparent to me than when I was at COP27, the UN Climate Conference in Egypt. One of the main topics was how the countries that have caused most of the climate chaos should compensate the countries that are suffering first and worst. COP27 did result in the creation of a fund for loss and damage payments, which is a big step forward. But David Munene, Programs Manager with Catholic Youth Network for Environmental Sustainability in Africa, really schooled me in how the money, while important, is far from sufficient. Before we get to the quantifiable aspects of loss and damage. For me, loss and damage as a Kenyan means loss of heritage, it means loss of culture, it means loss of spiritual values, for example, shrines and trees that we consider to be important to our cultures, our spirituality and our way of life. It is the loss of connectivity, connectedness with our land. It implies the loss of lives It means uh, unproductivity of the land to which we are connected from birth. We walk on it and to death we return to the same land. When it comes to the hope, the theft, uh, loss and damage steals away from us the hope that tomorrow is assured and it's going to be there, it's going to be better. It also means that I carry with me a lot of anger because I've seen things that have grown around with disappear because of loss and damage. It means I've lost my sanity, if you say, if you'd like, to an extent, because now I have to deal with things I don't understand, that I did not really contribute to it. My forefathers didn't contribute as largely to it. And it's more than commas and brackets in texts at COP27. And as you come here to COP27 and encounter people. There's a lot of people here in dark suits from wealthy countries. Does that anger come up for you when you meet people on an individual level? Sometimes it's a it's a mix of anger, uh, devastation and pity. Because I, I pity that people would be comfortable in on the 14th floor when the ground floor is caving in. I, I pity them because they don't seem to want to look down where their high horse is going to crumble into. Because if, for example, Africa collapses, we are the lungs together with the Amazon, the lungs of the world, and we are crumbling together because of this. When someone is comfortable because they can live and another is dying, I pity them sometimes. But I'm also angry that the conversations they they hold um, seem to consider some of us as children of a lesser God. It's as if we are having a conversation about two different kinds of human families instead of one. If someone is losing their culture, their heritage, 
they are losing their connectedness with their ancestors. They are losing the hope for tomorrow. I would be deeply concerned. Yeah, we, many people in wealthy industrialized countries don't have those connections with place or ancestors. We've already lost that. And I'm feeling guilt as I'm hearing this. That's quite moving to hear you say this. You know, I mean, as an American, my carbon emissions have hurt you and your country. I know that was not my intention, but I don't know if it's meaningful to say I'm sorry or like I don't know what to do with that I wish I wish the, the opening of the inclusion of the agenda on loss and damage in this um, COP27 didn't come with that um, disturbing tagline of um, compensation is not admission of liability because if if I killed your dog and decided to pay you without saying I'm sorry or I contributed to the death of your dog and I didn't say I'm sorry, but I paid you. How would that feel to you? It would feel inadequate. So are you saying that money is important for loss and damage and words and feelings and intention and apology are also desired and needed? I think they are more important, especially to the indigenous communities. Apology is more important than money. I think because when... Uh, when that money comes now, it will be backed up by good intention. Right now, um, it will be money because either A, we can afford it, or two, we want to just get forget about what we have done, bury this under the carpet. However, I understand that introducing the conversation about uh, qualifying loss and damage would even derail the small steps that we have already made to include issues of now finance. So I'm not saying that we should stop talking about finance for loss and damage. I'm just saying this should not be the end. I pity the people that would be comfortable on the 14th floor when the ground floor is caving in. That line has resonated with me so much after hearing this conversation. How do you feel, Greg, listening back to it a couple months later? I got chills listening to that a month later. That interview changed me, standing there looking deeply into his eyes on the continent of Africa, I sobbed afterwards, after that interview, and it's really, really powerful. Children of a lesser God, we know what we're doing, and we don't want to look at that. And his graciousness and forgiveness and his balance of rage and acceptance was really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, you made the point in the interview about how most Americans have already lost that deep connection to ancestral land. That resonated with me, and similarly, in the interview we did with Samoan journalist Lengi Poeva Sherelle Jackson— For those of us who've only been in a place for a generation or two, the loss of that connection is really hard to fathom, and it's important for us to hear it. I agree. Let's listen again to Langipoiva Sherelle Jackson. In the birth story of a Samoan, first the afterbirth is buried on your land, marking where you stay, and this is your ancestral land. And then the umbilical cord of the baby, once it drops off, is also buried on the land, usually with a tree. And then when you die, you are also buried on that land. And you'll often find in Samoa and in other Pacific Island countries that we sometimes bury our dead in our homes. Because the homes are open, um, you'll see like graves within the front porch of the house because we're still related. We're still very much a part of the family, whether or not you died 100 years ago, 50 years ago or yesterday. Now, where this becomes a climate story is that for atoll nations such as Marshall Islands, Kiribati, 
Tuvalu, Tokelau. When they are forced to leave because there will be no more land or it's fully submerged or it's no longer inhabitable, you cannot just up and leave a piece of land as you would say in the States, in the US, where you're like, okay, I have an apartment here, I own a home, I can go buy a home somewhere else. No, this is something that your ancestors grew up in, you're born into this land, your children, your children's children are supposed to be on this land forever, irrespective of where you go in the world. For my children, they will always have land in my home village, our ancestral land that we will always go back to. Like infinity and beyond, like it's always going to be there. So to then say to a Pacific Islander, this is no longer yours because the ocean has taken over. That's essentially saying cutting off. It's almost saying you're cutting off the rest of their lineage. And lineage is very much a part of our, you know, of our upbringing. I've interviewed communities in Fiji who were, their whole villages were wiped out by Cyclone Winston in 2016. And they're like, yeah, we're going to rebuild right here. When it comes to islands and you don't have any other choice of location, you rebuild there because culturally that's where you are and where you will always be. It almost, it's almost, in, in a sense, it's not even a choice. You just stay. I mean, what an impossible situation to be faced with. And she says, it's not even a choice. You just stay. But how can you stay if your land is now underwater? I don't know. It's indeed an impossible choice. It seems like unlucky geography is partly to blame. According to a recent IPCC report, people in climate-vulnerable countries are 15 times more at risk than developed countries. Bangladesh is 15 times more vulnerable than the Netherlands. But when I raised this question with Wanjira Mathai, regional director for Africa and vice president of the World Resources Institute, she said the evidence doesn't support that conclusion. It's really about inequality. Well, Greg, actually, it is not geography because Bangladesh should not have uh, as much damage as as uh, the Netherlands because the Netherlands is is more exposed per capita to sea level rise. But we know that in Bangladesh, Given the same situation, Bangladeshis will be 15 times more more, uh, affected. So it has nothing to do with geography. It has everything to do with prosperity because you build the sort of technologies that we know how brilliant the Netherlands are about protecting themselves from sea level rise, the sort of research technology that goes into protecting themselves. This is not the case for Bangladesh. And so it is a a difference in, in, um, in prosperity as well. And these developing countries are often characterized as climate victims. You know, what do you think of that frame? You, you frame this as very much of a moral responsibility, but how about that frame of, of being victims? I, that- I, I don't like the frame of victims because I think it sort of it immobilizes people. I think uh, the communities that are, that are impacted by climate change are, are, are 
disproportionately impacted and they're doing everything they can. I think the image of victim makes it look like they're sitting there waiting. They're not. People are working very hard to think about ways that they can uh, protect their populations, protect their countries, especially you look at the island states, Marshall Islands and others, but they need the solidarity of the rest of the world because this is not a problem that they created. Absolutely, they need that solidarity. You say that the climate conversation is intellectual and it should shift to more of an emotional one. Talk about that, how people talk about climate kind of up in their head with lots of facts and charts and figures and should be more of a from a different heart centered place. Right. You know, and I do too. I mean, I know all the science. I I read it. I'm charged by it. I feel like I'm motivated by a lot of these facts. But it just seems to be, if you look at the very fundamental one, that 80% of the G20 is responsible for global emissions. We are headed like a speed train in the wrong direction. We have eight years, maybe even seven, to arrest catastrophic climate change. Think about that for a minute. We have to do it in the next seven years. It doesn't seem like we're in a hurry when you look out into the horizon and see how we are we are addressing issues of new oil wells or new drilling, especially in the countries whose carbon budgets just don't allow for them to go in that direction. And the science has gotten better. The science has gotten tighter. Why are we not moving with more urgency? That's the intellectual Um, overcoming the emotional. Because apparently, if we were more connected to the reality of that, we would not be joking about it. And and we would be moving with more haste. Right. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, what's happening on the positive side? Because we tend, as climate people often to look at the dark side, you know, the bad things in are, are happening faster, the good things are happening slower. And yet there are good things that are also happening fast. But the good things are not happening fast enough. And that's the difference. I think we need to, unfortunately, we need to move faster. We've caused untold damage. We've caused with the way we've we've developed. And, and I think we have to move fast, but with, with justice, to acknowledge that there are people who haven't been responsible for this and who must be lifted out of poverty. Because you cannot adapt to climate change when you're at a certain level of poverty. When you're on the cliff, you're on the cliff, even if you have all the best dikes. I mean, the, it is literally uh, an issue of of prosperity as well. And that's why the development agenda for vulnerable countries is so important. The poorest of the poor cannot be allowed to continue. You can't adapt against that. That's just impossible. Greg, you've been covering climate for 15 years now, and I hear in your questions a real desire to hear some good news. Well, of course, we need that and we want that. I hear UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking at COP27, and it's kind of a downer, even when he refers to ACDC. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. And there is good news, even if the good news is that that things aren't as bad as we thought it would be. Right. Here's what David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth, told you earlier this year. 
I have a somewhat less alarmist view of the science of climate change than I did a few years ago. I think that some of the worst case scenarios now seem, if not impossible, then considerably less likely than they did um, when I wrote the article in 2017 and, and the book, which came out in early 2019. Now, I think the where we're headed and, and even our best case scenarios involve a lot of climate suffering. And so we shouldn't tell ourselves that this is a happy story exactly, but it is a relatively happy story if some of the truly most unimaginable horrors are looking less likely. So are you celebrating that? Well, I'd like to. I mean, Mr. Darkness is saying it's not as bad as he thought it was. I mean, it's true that emissions are still going up. But according to Gavin McCormick, founding member of the Global Emissions Tracker Climate Trace, the fact that they are not going up as fast as predicted is cause for celebration. I asked Gavin how looking at the global climate data has affected his own personal hopes and fears for our shared climate future. It's pretty stunning for an environmental activist to say that they're calming down, but um, I have just been stunned by how much good news I see in the data. Um, can you, you know, say can we, you say that again, yeah, please? <laughs> yeah, I have been stunned by how well we are doing as a species. Nobody talks about this part. So um, one of my favorite analyses, for example, is I looked at how much our country's uh, emissions increasing each year, and what I'm seeing in the climate trace data is that the rate of increase is shrinking so fast, we are getting real close to flatlining here. And I'm seeing that it's happening in every industry in every country. We aren't seeing a story uh, that some people had believed that it's only the global north reducing emissions or something like this. Um, and I'm seeing really a large number of cases where there's a concrete, simple action you could take that would reduce a lot of emissions without anybody having to um, lose their fortune or anything like that. And, and I'm becoming much more hopeful that we um, we have underestimated how easy it is to make progress on climate change. So, Greg, what was your reaction when you heard that? I wanted him to say it again. I want to replay it on a loop to give everyone a little pick-me-up. The climate trace data he's talking about looks at the largest 72,000 individual sources of emissions on the planet. And one fact that really stood out to me was that 1% of facilities emit 14% of global emissions. That kind of transparency can provide levers for accelerated progress. And you, Ariana, what was your reaction? Well, of course, I also want to believe we're making progress. As several of our guests told us this year, good things are happening, just not fast enough. So both things are true, and we need to celebrate the successes and keep up the pressure for even more. I think that's the key, is to look at the light and the darkness and balance them both and, and go forward holding both of those things. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the year in climate. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. There were so many good episodes from 2022, we couldn't review them all here. You can find all of our shows on our podcast feed or at climateone.org. Talking about climate can be hard. It also can be interesting and moving, just as you heard today. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basili is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>